You're listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jeffrey, New Hampshire. Our mission is to bring the hope of Jesus to Jeffrey and beyond. We are here to know Christ, grow in Christ, and serve others. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejeffrey.org. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. I love that idea that behold con. We're going to be using that word behold, in fact, several times today. Uh, as we look at this storyline in Matthew chapter 2. This is uh, what we're going to do today, is we're going to pretend today is Epiphany Sunday. Okay, last Sunday it was snowy and we were all home, nice, snug, warm in our pajamas. Okay, Uh, this week we're going to pretend that it was last week. Uh, For last week was Epiphany Sunday, I'll explain a little bit more on that, but we're going to be looking at these three uh, main ideas, really two major events, the visitation of the wise men and the baptism of Jesus today uh, just briefly. So I just want to read some of Matthew 2 and the end of Matthew 3. So Matthew 2 begins here, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, verse 2 of Matthew 2, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes and people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. And so it is written by the prophet, and this was part of our call to worship this morning. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler, or a king, who who will shepherd my people Israel." Verse seven, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen, had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, They rejoiced greatly with great joy. Here again, the Bob Wister just talked about, the joy, right? And going into the house, they saw the child and Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country and by another way. And then eventually the storyline goes in Matthew 2. They flee to Egypt, Uh, Herod seeks and kills many of the children under age two there in Bethlehem. They eventually return to Nazareth after uh, Herod dies, and so they don't head to Bethlehem, they head back to Nazareth. And then we get in chapter three, John the Baptist comes onto the scene. We skip ahead 30 years later or so, give or take a few, and we come to the end of chapter three, John the Baptist is preaching a message of repentance and baptizing people in the Jordan River. Jesus comes up in verse 13 and it says, and Jesus came to, from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. This is verse 14 of chapter three. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all of righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, there's the word again, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God 
descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. Let us pray. Father, we come before you. We ask God that you would humble us underneath the word of God today, that we'd be transformed by it, that it would not just go in one ear out the other as we might say, but Lord, that it would implant your holy word within us so that it may take root and grow to bear fruit in our lives. We pray for that in Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, today is Epiphany Sunday, or not, one week late. Uh, if you're not familiar with, with what Epiphany was or didn't grow up in church traditions that celebrated that, um, Epiphany is simply, uh, the word can be described in this way, is that it is a revelatory manifestation of the divine Christ. It is, can be viewed as an appearance of something quickly, uh, a manifestation of one's presence very suddenly, or a, like a, you might have an epiphany, as we might say, a, a sudden insight or intuitive understanding of something. Uh, perhaps in literature and writing and, and movies and these kinds of things, it can be a revealing scene or moment when all of a sudden you understand the plot or you understand something for the first time that you, you didn't understand before. You had uh, a light bulb went off, okay? Something like that. Uh, But throughout church history, uh, the church has traditionally, depending on which kind of branch of church history you you follow, there would be last week or on January 6th uh, and 7th, uh, Epiphany Sunday, there would be a celebration of the visitation of the wise men and or uh, the baptism of Jesus. And we see that naturally in the storyline. Obviously, Matthew 2 and 3, back to back, share those storylines of the wise men that visited. I know a lot of our nativity scenes have the wise men right there on the side, but likely the wise men didn't attend the birth of Jesus till probably several months later. Uh, Some might even say a few years. I would say probably just a few months after Jesus was born, uh, the, the wise men from the east likely attended and came and visited and offered gifts. So again, depending on the church calendar or church tradition, you can say this 12 days of Christmas. The 12th day of Christmas is the day of Epiphany. And so as you look at from Advent uh, to the Nativity Christmas season, and then it leads up to the day of Epiphany, it's a day of marking those holidays and calendars and times of remembrance to follow along the storyline of Christmas. And I know you're like, uh, Jordan, it's January 14th and we're still talking about Christmas. I mean, well, I almost had them do a couple Christmas songs today, but I just felt like some of you would revolt and leave and walk out. So we're not going to do that. Uh, but in other church traditions, especially in Latin cultures, uh, Epiphany Sunday, or the the 12th day there, is this idea, and I'm not as familiar, but I've talked to a few people who grew up around this, in that uh, they would celebrate Three Kings Day. It was called Three Kings Day. There would be a celebration of a Three Kings cake, like a Rosca de Reyes, and there's this round kind of cake with kind of looks like a king's crown that is celebrated. And somebody even told me uh, they have a family. Uh, I have family who is married into a Puerto Rican family. And they said that their, their round cake that has a little baby Jesus baked into the cake. And whoever gets that slice wins a prize or something. But I always thought it was kind of cool to see how different cultures around the world celebrate the different special holidays. There's nothing sacred about the day of Epiphany. But there is just this rem- reminder of what it is we're talking about. And so as Advent leads us to Christmas, Christmas leads us to Epiphany, Epiphany leads us to even the times that will be coming up of different 
highlights and events. The Easter will be coming. Uh, we have Pentecost that is coming. And those different moments throughout a church calendar that mark a separate season. And Epiphany is one of them. And so the rejoice theme leads us to this point. As we were looking in the Advent season, we looked at Zechariah's song as he is prophesying this message of the birth of John the Baptist and of Jesus Christ. Mary's magnificent. She sings this song. Uh, The angel's song. On, the, on Luke 2, when Jesus is born. Then Simeon Anna's song, which follows that in Luke 2, when Jesus is presented at the temple. And so those are all progressively leading us down a timeline for the very first and early kind of weeks of Jesus' birth. And now we skip ahead a month or two, or three, depending on the timeline here, and we finally see the wise men coming into Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem and worshiping baby Jesus. And it is in this moment that then skips ahead 30 years later to the baptism of Jesus, where in both moments, both these little spots of time are, are areas where we get to see a little bit more about Jesus than we previously knew. We know of what Simeon and Mary and and Anna and Zechariah, we know of what they say, but then in particular, when Gentiles from a foreign land come seemingly out of nowhere and worship this baby as a mighty king, we get this epiphany moment where we, whoa, we're, we're supposed to kind of pay attention to that. And then in Jesus, when he is baptized in this river, and the voice of God speaks out from the heavens, you are meant to kind of stop, pause, and say, wow, I, I didn't really know what's going on here before, I, but maybe perhaps we're meant to think and have this moment, this spot of time. I use that phrase because I was reading something that was quoting William Wordsworth. I don't often read William Wordsworth. I know I'm kind of a nerd, but I'm not that much of a nerd. And uh, William Wordsworth is a famous poet. I looked it up, 1770 to 1850, during a romantic period. And uh, William Wordsworth is famous for uh, a variety of extraordinary, amazing, and, and intricate literature, prose, and poetry but he's credited with the use of epiphanies. Now, he doesn't use the word epiphanies in his writings. He uses a phrase instead called a spot of time. And he, he organizes some of these long, long poems with different spots of time that take you through this narrative. And in his most famous, one of his most famous works called The Prelude, it's a poem that elaborates on his own experience of life. Uh, often different moments in his childhood that stand out and he uses as teaching examples in his prose and poetry. He writes this, there are in our existence spots of time that with distinct preeminence retain a renovating virtue whence depressed, and I'll skip through the poem a little bit, the obedient servant of her will, such moments are scattered everywhere, taking their date from our first childhood. That poem, as he describes, he says in there, there are in our existence spots of time. Today, I want us to think in, in relation to that. 
The spots of time in significance that are in the word of God for us today, the visitation of the wise men, the star that comes out, but also the significance of the baptism of Jesus. But I also want you to be relating these things to your own lives, that what are those spots of time, these epiphanies in your life that have shaped you and formed you, perhaps made you who you are today? We could say positive or negative as you look back on your childhood or for those teenagers, perhaps look on just a few years before and you think about what are the moments in my life that have directed my path? What are those spots of time that God has used to direct and channel the path in which I was to take? Spots of time which made you who you are. Perhaps they're big things. Sometimes you can even think and you often don't even know they're happening to you until many years later. I think even just little things at the top of my head. I can remember when I was a senior, I've shared this before, but I broke my foot and there was just a very simple thing. I broke my foot in the middle of basketball season and just slowed down my entire life. All of a sudden, everything came to a halt and I couldn't do everything I wanted to do. And God used that little spot of time to slow down and he spoke to me in that period of time in in ways that I, I look back and I see are formative for me. Spots of time when I, the birth of my first child, Char here, Charlie, right, uh, well, and I almost fainted at it as well. Well, that's a story for another time. That was a spot of time, okay? I almost fainted and the nurses are attending to me rather than my wife and my child, but I don't even know why I bring that up. But um, that spot of time when holding my first child, right, you, the experience of what the awe and just the the mind-blowingness, right? <laughs> Whatever that's not even a word. But the, the idea of just being completely in awe of a moment that just you'll never see really a human being or a person the same way ever again after you have experienced the birth of your own child, something of like that, or just these moments that made me hard. And I think about the word of God and these celebration and these spots, these days, these holidays of Christmas and Advent, right? And, and Epiphany, when Jesus comes to earth, the wise men visit Jesus. And I wonder if Mary is sitting there as she receives this gift of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And she's, she's almost like, she knows who Jesus is. Yes, she understands. She's herself believes but then to be in awe again at these, this uh, traveling caravan of magi visiting her and saying such extraordinary things. And so it's in these spots of time that are meant to influence and change us as well. That, that we today, I want you simply, just really easy, almost so simple, it's just behold the wise men, behold the star, and behold the sun. And I, this word behold, I hope it sticks with you. Yes, behold, Con. I think it stuck to me. I'm thinking about that for Saturday. But while I'm reading it, I kept stumbling upon behold, 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 behold. Behold is like view, see, look, pay attention. In fact, I was reading this a few weeks ago to my kids before bed. We were talking about the wise men, and I read Matthew chapter 2. And, and Charlie, every time I read behold, I would use this really low voice, right? Behold. And then she would go, And so it was this hilarious dramatic reading we had in our house. And I would say, behold, the star. And it came through. And so I don't think we're going to do that as an entire church. I did think about it. But every time I say behold, the entire church would sing ah. But then I just, I don't think we have time. So we're going to just keep rolling here. But behold, hey, it kind of worked. That's not bad. All right. I was really nervous about that. Behold the wise men, okay? Now, let's not keep doing that every single time because we'll never make it through. 
Um, but behold, the wise men here, we describe here in this, this situation of what's going on. Obviously, we're familiar with this story in many ways. Uh, but I've always been curious where the wise men came from. I preached on this a couple years ago, but when we look at the wise men, the word is also magi, and that is found, that word specifically, is, is found in the book of Daniel in many different places. And so scholars study this and to say, where in the world did these men from the east come from? Like, these magi just show up seemingly out of the blue from the east. And so it's like, where did they come from? Most people believe they came from the land of Babylon in that area of Persia. Uh, you could say modern-day Iraq or um, I think it's south of Baghdad in these areas of we, that we're familiar with today. And so you have in the book of Daniel, as they're carried away into exile, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, perhaps you're familiar with the stories. They would have brought uh, copies of the law and, and they would have taught the story of Jewish history and the prophecies. And Daniel is actually called in the book of Daniel the chief of the Magi. And so hundreds of years later, before they actually ever arrive here in Bethlehem, it is likely that there was a remnant of people who were reading and studying the Old Testament law that had been brought there in the exile to the land of Babylon. And perhaps we can surmise that, that they would have studied prophecies like Micah 5 and other places in Numbers that speak about a star rising and a ruler coming from Bethlehem. And so it is one of those things where you can see it is likely that that is how God has planted his word out in a Gentile nation with magi, these people who would have been studying the stars and the movements of these things and found out and been traveled and led also by the spirit to this place to present in this extraordinary way. And so the magi are significant in here, but we also see in Matthew 2 this really clear contrast that happens, even right from the very first verse of Matthew. Matthew 2, it says, now Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod. And what does it say? The days of Herod the king, okay? And so right before the magi is this statement of Herod the king, also known as Herod the Great. He really thought much of himself. As you do, and as you ever get a chance to visit Israel, you will go, no doubt, and visit many of the colossal building structures that Herod built. Not only did he build this massive temple for the Jews there in Jerusalem, ornate and glorious and massive. Um, he built a whole host of other things. He was an extraordinary construction builder, planner, um, the Herodium, Massa, and a whole host of so many other things. And as you study, you begin to see that Herod really did think he was quite something. He was quite great. And even throughout history, he was a vicious megalomaniac, many would say. Uh, he was known, obviously, most well-known in the Word of God in Matthew chapter 2, when it is called that he killed all of the male children in Bethlehem under two years old. My son Judson is two and a half years old. You can see him running around. All children at that age and under would have been slaughtered. The slaughter of the innocents, as it's known. This was to, in order to protect the power that he had as supposed king. And so what you're meant to see in Matthew chapter 2 is this competition between the two kings. It's really not a competition at all, but you're meant to see this way of, of um, Herod the Great, Herod the King versus uh, Jesus, the King of Kings, born in obscurity in this little manger into kind of middle class kind of life. And then King, great, mighty, palaces, armies, power, money, influence. These two things are clearly 
exposing this theme that runs throughout the word. It, Mary sings about it. Joseph knows it. Zechariah sings about it as well in his prophecy of the, the, the poor will be lifted up and the rich and the powerful and the proud, they will be uh, brought low. And so the humble will be exalted. The proud will be humbled. And this is foretold in the person of Jesus, and we see this in the person of Herod, as eventually he falls off the scene, and the way of God and the plan of of God goes on. And Jesus and Mary, and they escape to Egypt, and they escape Herod. And yet I also wonder, as we see Herod, and we can almost in many ways see the, the evil of mankind inside of him as well, he beholds, he sees, he knows Jesus, and yet his response is quite different than our response is supposed to be. He sees Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah. In fact, his own chief priests and scribes bring to him the very prophecy from Micah 5 saying that a king would be born in Bethlehem. And he ignores that, and instead of going like the wise men did, like the magi did, and bringing actual gifts and bowing down and worshiping him, he seeks out ways in which he can protect his own skin and his own power. And I wonder at times as I read this passage if this is not how you and I can act in so many different ways. How we might be right now, perhaps we are pushing back against the very thing that we see and know to be true. We see Jesus, we might perhaps attend church, we see people singing, we see people praising, talking about Jesus and these things, and yet we know internally that other people might not be aware of what we're feeling inside of how we are not ready to bow the knee to this Jesus yet. We understand other people are all about this, not for me, I'm not ready for that, and we are attempting to protect our own little kingdoms. And so much of life really can be related down to that of me and thinking I am the king of my own castle. That I, Jordan Moody, can protect the kingdom that I have built for myself. And yes, you might say that could be true for a certain period of time. But eventually that will come to an end. And what will we do then? And so for this way of Herod protecting his power, his kingdom, his way, you can gain your own soul and lose your own life. Right? You, uh, sorry, you can gain the world and yet lose your own soul. Dr. Michael Youssef talks about this in a, in a wonderful way on the paradox of Christianity, the paradox of faith, the paradox of what we just spoke about, the two kings. He says this, a paradox is an apparent contradiction which conceals a profound truth. And the Bible is filled with paradoxes that we triumph by first surrendering to God. Uh, we find rest under a yoke. We see through the, the unseen through faith. We find freedom in becoming Christ's servants. We are made great by becoming little. We gain through giving. We become wise by becoming fools for Christ's sake. And we can only truly live if we die to self. What an extraordinary paradox of truth. And he would say the greatest paradox in the entire Bible is found in the birth of Jesus Christ. His coming to earth is somewhat of a paradox. The Herod the Great called the Great, but rather becomes Herod the weak, Herod the murderer, Herod the fool. 
but rather if we are willing to humble ourselves, as we so often say around here, under the mighty hand of God, then we will be exalted. You gain the kingdom of heaven when you die to self, and then, and only then, are you able to truly live in Christ. And so we find that we can have life when we simply come and behold the king, just like the wise men did. They came, Herod attacked, but they came, humbled themselves, searched, and they desired to worship him. They expressed that in many different places here in chapter two, that we have come all this way to find this king. We have come to worship him. That is the same mentality that we are meant to have as well to come and worship the king. Because as John the Baptist says in chapter three, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it is now. Repent and worship the king. And so number two is behold, where you want to do it, good. See, you, you listened, you guys obeyed. I told you not to do it. I just was testing you, okay? Behold the star, number two, behold the star. This is just simply worship. As we've said, the wise men have come to worship the king. If you look at Matthew 2, verse 9, it says, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose before them and until it came to rest over the place where the child was. The star, it's just a, it's a beautiful picture and image and it's, one, it's something that's always fascinated me. And perhaps it's something of an alignment of planets or whatnot, we're not exactly sure, but the star directed the worship of the true king, and that's what it reminds me of. That it just took the focal point of the myriads of stars in the sky, and there was one star, both perhaps miraculously, or God aligned the planets in such a way that it directed their attention and their gaze to one little spot of time. Spot of time when Jesus would be in that place in Bethlehem. A few months later after his birth perhaps, and he is in a place where that star directs, the light of God shines down on that place and it directs all of us to look in one direction to one person, the person of Jesus Christ. And I love just even what Cale said this morning, just as he reflected our hearts and they did a fantastic job of worship this morning. Uh, perhaps that is probably the one thing I miss about when we have a nice uh, snow day in PJs when we get all the snow on church is when I miss church, I miss the singing. Right? I just miss being able to sing together. There's something about that, and it does not sound as great when I sing by myself at home, right? And to be together, to not even just maybe sound great, but as, as Kale was just saying, just directing our hearts, we've just come here to worship the king, to worship together, to praise his name, praise the king, these ideas, right? And so our entire life and lifestyle directed to praising God. And what do they do? They give in their praise and in their life. They do not stand back from afar. They come to the king and they offer him these humble gifts of worship of what? Right, we have gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This gold is describing simply that Jesus is king. Gold is this gift you give to a king. It is, it is something of great value and worth. But they also give a unique gift of frankincense. You can tell inside that word is incense, right? In fact, we sang with the first song as they said, let incense arise. And some of you might be confused as to what in the world that's talking about. This idea of incense arise is this concept from the Old Testament in which incense would be burning in the temple of God. It would waft up into the heavens and in the New Testament reflects that in our prayers and our worship that are offered to him as a sweet smelling savor. That we pray that our worship and our prayers would literally, in this sense, 
incense would arise, that they would rise up to God and they would be sweet in his, in his um, understanding of this and that he would receive them and receive this worship as we worship. So in a sense, gold, Jesus is king. Frankincense, you could say Jesus is fully God, that he is fully God, that we worship him as God. And then we see myrrh. Myrrh, I would say in some ways, could be a reflection of that Jesus is fully man and that Myrrh was something often used in a variety of situations, but it was a very expensive and hard to get um, element, and it would be used in the burial process, in embalming, in situations around death, and so kind of a weird gift to give to a baby, but it is a gift nonetheless that describes the fact that Jesus is king, Jesus is God, but also that he was going to come and be live, live as a man, and he would take a cross and die for our sins that there was something specific and special about that. And then we see, as this all leads us to behold the king, to behold our God, to behold the son of man who takes on our sins for us to the cross and rises from the dead, conquering the grave, conquering our sins so that we can live today. We see that 25, 30 years later, there is this spot of time where Jesus steps onto the scene in a greater and more public way than he ever had before. For really, if you can think about it, there is only a handful of people, you might say, knowing about the birth of Jesus, but now there will be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds over his three-year ministry, starting initially with the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter three. So uh, this last point is to behold the son, to behold him. It comes full circle. The story begins with Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke 1 as they are celebrating the birth of Elizabeth, this miraculous birth of John the Baptist. And, and, and Mary visits Elizabeth, her relative. Do you remember this? And Jesus, uh, John the Baptist, jumps in the womb at the mere presence of Mary and Jesus in the womb. And this little pericope, that little story, that little spot of time, now 30 years later, we have now Jesus stepping onto the scene. And John the Baptist and Jesus as well, now adult men, are now stepping into the forefront of the scene and setting the scene for the rest of the narrative of salvation. It's an extraordinary, beautiful moment. And so we come full circle and Jesus comes to this water of baptism. And it's a curious moment, because why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized? What in the world does he need to repent from? He's the perfect son of God. He has no reason to step into the waters and repent from his sins and have Jesus, in, in, in a sense, have the waters washing, cleansing in this picture of repentance and turning towards something. He is the thing that we're turning towards. Like, and so John is confused. John is confused. He, he's like, uh, I, I do not want to baptize you. I don't want to have anything to do with this. I, I, should, you should, I should be washing your feet. I shouldn't be the one baptizing you. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Jesus answers him in verse 15 and says, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all of righteousness. And he says, listen, like, this is to fulfill the scriptures in which I have come and I am stepping into your shoes, into your sandals, and I am stepping into the water so that I may be an example for others. For Jesus, again, does not need to be baptized, but he steps into the waters of baptism and leads us to do the same, to point us to the means of righteousness and the means of peace with God would be only through the the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
For Jesus would be this sacrifice, the forerunner, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And he is foreshadowing what he is about to do on the cross by his stepping into the waters of baptism. He steps into that river and he sets an example for all people and for the church to follow for centuries. And he also, in a unique way, identifies with the need of humanity. What is your need? The need is the fact that you and I are sinners and we need a savior to save us from the inevitability of the curse of sin, which is death. So Jesus steps into the waters of baptism. He identifies with the sins of the world and he would take on the sins of the world on the cross as he would then die underneath the waters of baptism. And as he would rise again from the waters of baptism and as he would walk to newness of life. That's Romans chapter six. And so you see in this picture of his identification with people. And then we, when we are baptized in whatever mode that is, but when we are baptized, we find ourselves identifying with Christ, identifying with the family of God, identifying with the people of God that are relying on Jesus to be the one who takes away our sins. And so Jesus has no need for baptism, but he comes in and identifies with humanity and foreshadows his intention to go and take that sin, put it on the cross, as Colossians would say, and cancel our debts, nail it there, and leave it once, you could say, put it at the bottom of the ocean, put it as far as the east is from the west, take that sin and destroy it, killing the hostility, thereby making peace with God and man. He alone is the one who can wash away our sins. And so in this epiphany, in this moment, in this spot of time, I want you to see these moments, to behold the king, and behold the star of God which directs our worship to him, and to behold the baptism of Jesus as we behold the son of man, as John says in that passage, behold the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. We behold our need for all of that. We behold our need for our Savior. And so we consider ourselves then in like manner, dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That we now walk in newness of life and we identify with our Savior and we trust in him for all of these things. I pray today is a spot of time for you where you have a better and clearer understanding of this or perhaps today is a spot of time where you recognize your need for that Savior, Jesus Christ, to come in to your life, take on your sin, and wash you whiter than snow. That spot of time is formative in our lives as we look back perhaps on our own baptism in that spot of time and what that means for our lives today in who we are in keeping the faith, looking to Jesus, running the race that is set before us. We look back upon those spots of time and we look back on those epiphany type moments that make us who we are today. And I pray that those strengthen your faith, encourage your hope for tomorrow and, and give you the courage and to, to face the day. Let us close in prayer. Father, we, thank for, thank, we are thankful for you. We praise your holy name. God, we are grateful now to come before your table and be reminded about how you have come that you have taken our sin on the cross, buried in a grave, and you have risen again. And God, that it doesn't end there because you have ascended to the right hand, to the right 
hand of God, you are sitting on the throne almighty, and Lord, we are waiting for you to come again. We praise you, God, for our hope, the future of the new heaven and the new earth that we long for. And God, I pray that you would help us to live today in the already and yet the not yet fully complete, for we wait for your return. And yet we are grateful to celebrate as a church, spreading your light, the light of the world that lives with us and is expressed today in the church that we participate in through your body and your blood. We praise you for that. Thank you for this family meal that we partake together and we glorify your name in it all. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand with me to partake of the Lord's table where we take of this and we, we are reminded of the bread, the body, and the blood that was given for you. So the elders, deacons would come forward dispense these elements. Again, if you're visiting with us for the very first time, we welcome you. We thank you that you are here. This is a family meal, the family of faith together. So if you consider yourself a part of that family of God, you consider yourself a follower of Jesus and a believer in him, we challenge you to join us in this meal as we will partake together of the bread and the cup.
take the bread? As we've come before him, we've perhaps been examining the content of the sermon or the message or our very own hearts where we, we pause in this spot of time, a moment, because there are many things left to do this day, but we take a moment, we pause, we slow down, we remember what he has done for us, what stands for us today, and is our hope for our eternal life and future with him. The word of God says, for I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes father we come before you as your family as your church united by your spirit today We come before you in the holiness of communion and this time of remembrance. We we thank you, God, for your spirit that is with us, uniting us together in one faith, one baptism. We are reminded, God, that we are together as a people, the people of God, preaching and proclaiming the light of Jesus wherever you may take us. And in this place and in this spot of time, we find ourselves grateful that you would look down upon us. You would visit us. God, help us to remember your greatness. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You are our Savior, and you love every person here in this place. I praise God. I praise you today.